Torrent. Greetings from the north, and very welcome to Forum Borealis, and a brand new episode in our series, From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. And today, we have an exceptional show for you. A three-parter, actually, although I intended it as a single show. Once the discussion started, it just unraveled into profound rabbit holes, and even the five hours committed doesn't do proper justice to the subject matters dealt with, which is why we have a series in the first place. So you can be certain we will revisit many of these topics with today's guests, as well as others who has done significant work in this field. Now... At first glance, the topic of Norsemen and Templars in America may seem like a somewhat trivial peculiarity for history nerds, but beware that all implications raised pulls strings in all sorts of directions, notwithstanding history-shattering revelations. In particular, I recommend Part 2, where some outstanding new info is shared, which in due course will be found in several future books. But in part one, we start with the beginnings and take on the Kensington runestone, its context, implications and relations, which works as a key of sorts to the greater mystery, followed up in part two, where we deal with the who's, whence and why's, and spill the beans from hermetically sealed documents, which makes fiction look boring. And finally, in part three, we touch upon the more spiritual aspects of this saga, especially through the mysteries of the runes and the heresy of everyone the Vatican devoted centuries to destroy. Our guide through this roller coaster ride is none other than Scott Fred Walter, scientist, author and TV host. Son of a pilot, and descending from several prominent lineages, including the Merovingians and the Sinclairs, he was born at winter solstice in 1958 in Florida, but moved early on to Minnesota, where he married his wife and spiritual companion, Janet, in 86, herself an author in her own right. By education, he is a forensic geologist certified from the University of Minnesota, Duluth, in 1982. As a lifelong esteemed scientist, he's made several significant contributions to the field and spent years conducting research and creating dating processes to learn more about ancient artifacts and shared his expertise with the world through publications and media. He's the inventor of archaeopetrography, I probably butchered the term, which is a process used to date and understand the origins of stone artifacts. He's been the principal petrographer in more than 5,000 investigations throughout the US, Canada and Puerto Rico, including the evolution of fire-damaged concrete at the Pentagon following the attacks of September 11. 
as an expert in the scientific handling of concrete. He was also present to help out analyzing the concrete remains of the World Trade Center and has even helped the Las Vegas police investigate a homicide where a victim was found buried in concrete. In addition to investigating and dating ancient artifacts in criminal cases, Walter has been president of American Petrographic Services since 1990. He is responsible for the independent petrographic analysis testing laboratory where the Kensington runestone was brought for investigation in the year 2000. His first big screen appearance was as a Kensington runestone expert, on the documentary Holy Grail in America, and later became the host of the popular documentary TV series America Unearthed, airing at Travel Channel and History International, where we follow him on his quest to uncover the truth behind historic artifacts and sites found throughout North America and around the world. Although embracing many different subjects, several episodes are based upon his own research as well as many other veterans of the field, tangenting some of the subject matters we explore in this and other of our forum series. Spiritually, he is affiliated with several esoteric groups, in particular Masonic and Knight Templar orders. More or less a natural result of where his research has taken him. Scott has authored several books on geology, the Knights Templar, and theories related to pre-Columbus contact. Part 1 touches upon stuff from his book, the Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence, co-authored with a prominent runologist, Dr. Richard Nielsen. Part 2 is relating material from his future book, as well as the recent Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers, The Mysteries of the Hooked X, plus some of the stuff in his other books. And Part 3 is more connected to his books, The Hooked X, Key to the Secret History of North America, and cryptic code of the Templars in America, origins of the hooked X. Prepare yourself for a parachute dive with part two as the actual jump. In Scott Walter's own words, the history that we were all taught growing up is wrong. There's a hidden history that few knows about. There are pyramids here, chambers, tombs, inscriptions, they're all over this country. We're going to investigate these artifacts and sites, and we're going to get to the truth. Sometimes history isn't what we've been told. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Scott. Thank you. And thank you for agreeing to coming on. You know, your work, what little I know about it, because... Full disclosure, people, unfortunately, this is one of these guests where I haven't read the books. But, like I told you before we started, I've seen uh, some of your media work, at least. And your that work fits so very well into this series we're having. This series, we're calling it From Solomon's Temple, no, From Arcadia. No, uh, sorry, from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. <laughs> uh, very good, very good. Yeah, and in that series, we've had uh, a friend of yours on, Timothy Hogan. Oh, yes, I know Tim quite well. I've known him for many years. He's a, he's a, 
he's a really good person and and one of the most knowledgeable people in the subject matter. I think that you're uh, Solomon to Arcadia. That Tim 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 would be a good one. Yeah, and we did, uh, for example, we did uh, one on the Templars. But the problem with Tim is that. Someone should, for Christmas, buy him proper equipment because the sound always sucks when we have him on, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, I'll have to needle him on that when I next time I talk to him. But you coming off uh, here now very well, but no, no wonder because you're also involved in TV. We'll get back to all that stuff later. Okay, very good. And where do you live? I, I'm Norwegian. All right, you live in Norway. Okay, well, I spend a lot of time in Sweden. Oh. Um, because that's where most of the uh, the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, the dialect features that are found on the rune stone. We found we found everything right uh, in medieval inscriptions, uh, primarily in Sweden and 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 specifically on Gotland. Yeah, uh, Gotland. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll get to that too. Um, now, so the reason uh, I have you on is basically your work, and uh, we. I, I want to start uh, in with, with the beginning, basically, both in terms of uh, how you, uh, I'm assuming, stumble into this scene, yeah. but also in terms of uh, uh, the timeline here, and that is the famous, or maybe I should say the infamous, <laughs> Kensington Runestone. Now, before you, you begin explaining to us, I just want to, for those who don't know, I want to say it's a discovery that was made in USA, and Scott will get, get back to the details around it. But yeah. the problem is, I've heard so many things. First, they say, wow, yeah, look at what we found. Oh, it's genuine. And then, no, 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 it's not genuine after all. Oh, oh, it's genuine after all. And it's like back and forth, back and forth. So (laughs) I want to give you the opportunity to clarify where we're standing on that. And also just assume those who listen don't even know what it's all about. What's all the fuss about? Right. Well, let, let me let me just give you a brief synopsis of what it is. And in the fall of 1898, um, a Swedish immigrant farmer by the name of Olaf Ullmann was clearing trees in preparation for farming on his 100-acre parcel of land up um, uh, in greater Minnesota, near Alexandria, Minnesota, uh, in, in, in a little town called Kensington. Mm. And um, he and his two oldest sons were clearing trees, and this one tree that was – uh, est- estimated to be 25 to 30 years old. They they cut off the roots around the base of the tree, and then they took a winch and they tipped it over, which pulled the stump out of the ground at the same time, right? The, mm. And uh, but but almost directly under the the tree, tightly wrapped in the roots that were still there, was this 202 pound rectangular shaped stone, which I might add uh, was exactly a two to one ratio. It had been uh, intentionally split down from a larger slab of rock, and a long inscription carved in Scandinavian runes um, comprised of nine lines of text on the face side and three lines of text on the side. Mm. Um, now, I have come to realize that all of this information is important, but none of this was discussed back at the time it was discovered. Well, Obviously, there was a lot of excitement in the community, and uh, early on, um, scholars at the University of Minnesota saw the stone, and they recognized some of the runes. They didn't recognize a lot of the other symbols, none of the numbers, and quickly concluded that it was a, it was a hoax. And, 
and uh, and blame the farmer for carving it. Well, when was this again, the year? This was in 1898, and then the first scholars looked at it early in 1899. So nothing, so 100 years has passed. More than 100 years. And the scholars are still as arrogant as ever. You know, <laughs> they were just as arrogant back then as they are now, obviously. <laughs> we don't know about it, therefore it doesn't exist. It's amazing, huh? <laughs> well, your, your, your comment about arrogance, and, you know, let's back up for a second and realize that it's easy to criticize people that you don't agree with by calling them names and, and you know, dismissing them out of hand. And we've certainly seen an, an awful lot of that in our country and on the larger stage. Yeah. And, and it, it just doesn't work. But, you know, one of the things that I have concluded um, during my time is what I call problems of the human condition. Mm-hmm. have been really the nemesis of the Kensington runestone and many other controversial artifacts and sites um, for centuries. I mean, not just with the runestone, but arrogance is one of the one of the problems. And and essentially what what the attitude was for the last 120 years, it's still going on to this day mm-hmm. within certain elements of academia is, well, if you know, I'm the world's expert in this information. And if I can't figure it out, then there must be something wrong with it. Therefore, they dismiss it. Exactly. Um, and I, I just, to pitch in, I, I think it's worse in, in the so-called soft sciences, especially archaeology. You, uh, you, you know you know Graham Hancock, right? Oh, sure. I know Graham quite well, yeah. And you know his battles with Egyptologists. Those people are religious fanatics, man. <laughs> it's better with geologists. By the way, aren't you a geologist? I am. Yeah. I am. Those tend to be more, you know, I'm fact. a forensic geologist. Sorry, what's that? I'm a forensic geologist. Wow, even better. I do, I do material forensics for a living. I've done it for, this will be my 35th year coming up. And basically I, I investigate um, mostly in the construction industry with concrete and rock, right? Mm. So if there's a problem with, 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 say, low strength or early cracking or a catastrophic failure or something is not going right with concrete. And concrete is a man-made rock, right? Yeah. Um, they will call me to come in and, you know, try to figure out what caused the particular problem. And then, of course, the next question is, <laughs> who's going to pay, right? Who, whose fault yeah. is it? So I get involved in a lot of litigation. So I understand this process of gathering evidence, making interpretations, and then, if appropriate, drawing a conclusion. But there are many times, um, well, I shouldn't say many times, it actually doesn't happen that often, but there are times when you either don't have enough information or you just are are unable to reach a definitive conclusion. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you are obligated. uh, To suspend judgment, yes. You just have to say, I don't know. Yep. And, and 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 that's okay. I mean, that's that, that's not just okay. That's scientific. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming this credential is how you got involved with the stone because you would be the perfect guy to take a look at it. Well, that's that's exactly right. In fact, the the Runestone Museum hired a person who went to the University of Minnesota Duluth, which is where I went, where I studied in, in college. And the professors there in the geology department said the guy that you need is Scott Walter. So they uh, they they put him in touch with me. And I remember when I sat down with this guy um, and he started talking about the runestone and I had never heard of it. 
which looking back is is almost ironic because it's 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 arguably the most uh, well known historical mystery uh, mysterious artifact in the world. I mean, it's it and and it's found in Minnesota, and I lived most of my life here. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I tell people, I said, look, I must have missed school that day. I, I don't know what you're talking about. No, but wasn't wasn't the, the judgment back in the day that it was uh, a fake and therefore there was no more fuss about it? It's a hoax, yeah. For 100 years? But I didn't know any of that. I knew nothing about that. And, okay. you know, what, and, what, and was, it was pretty clear that this guy was an advocate for authenticity, right? And, I, yeah. and my, my spidey sense tickled a little bit. And so I, I gave him the speech that I give to a lot of my customers. I say, look. I'll be happy to do this work for you, but you need to be prepared that I may come back and give you news you're not going to like, and you're still going to pay me, okay? (laughs) Because the beautiful thing is it doesn't matter what the results are. I get paid either way. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. So I gave him that speech, and he said, okay, and, uh, and away we went. So I went into this thing without any prior knowledge, and quite frankly, Al, it wouldn't have made any difference, but... The truth is, I knew nothing about it, and I started with a blank slate, as I do with all my work, and I let the evidence drive the investigation. Yeah. And um, I will tell you that we were ultimately able to um, let the rock tell us what it was. And and this is one of the things that I came to realize about the runestone and the problem. And I think you'll like this. Okay, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. For 120 years now, well, 121 years, academics have been trying to tell the Kensington runestone what it's supposed to be (laughs) instead of letting the artifact tell them what Mm, it is. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does make sense because we're so used to this in so many areas now. Yes. It's amazing. I guess that's what you Americans call uh, when uh, the, the, the tail wags the dog. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> you got you hit the nail on the head perfectly. Yeah. Yep. That's, and, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it's surprising because, and I, I don't want to get too much into politics, but what we're seeing in Washington, D.C. right now with, with Trump and, and the impeachment hearings and, you know, fake mm. news and the mm. FBI is, is the deep state. I mean, it's so much of it is just absolute nonsense Horrible. and outright lies. It's really depressing, to be honest with you, to America, you know. But it is, it is, Scott. But, but I suggest that another approach, and that's that if you're old enough to remember how it was before the Internet, Oh yeah, it's even it's it's kind of good in a way because it's so apparent and people are waking up. And you know, back in the day, people were much more naive. The deep state has been there forever, right? But, right. Yeah. But now we know about. Now everybody can see the charade. Yeah. And that makes well, us. You know what, in a way, I think you're right, and I think that when this all blows over because it will eventually hopefully sooner than later mm-hmm. um i think we will learn a lot and i think it'll be more difficult going forward for this 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 crap to go on mm-hmm. or, or more difficult anyway i mean but before they, they just got away with it there there was no checks and balances there was no way yeah to 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 research it and you know the 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 internet has changed the world obviously um for the good and i would argue for the bad as well mm-hmm.
Well, I've changed it. I, I think it records much of the bad. The bad has been there all the time, you know. We didn't well, become bad because of the internet. Yeah, you're right. But uh, yeah, it makes everything tra uh, visible. But I say the the rot that is so displayed in politics and in media is kind of also uh, infecting academia. And yeah, you I agree. I, I experienced this firsthand. Oh yes, I have. Um, you know the the. the the funny thing was, and, and I, I, I want to go back and just say, when I did this work, I had all kinds of people trying to talk to me. And I'm like, why are these people talking to me? And I, it's like, just get out of here. Let me do my work and we'll talk later. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say to people, and, and they kind of laugh at this, but it's really true. I trust rocks. I don't trust some people. Mm. Rocks have never lied to me. They always tell the truth and they don't have an agenda. They don't have egos. They just are. And so the rock told me after I did my um, w relative age weathering study by comparing the weathering of the inscription with the weathering of carved tombstones of known age. And, and, and it told me that it was centuries old. Hmm. And at that point it was really boiled down to logic because really the question was it's either a late 19th century hoax or it's not right mm. <laughs> so yeah. what else yeah well it's either genuine or it's not so so the only reason they thought it was ingenuine was because they didn't recognize some of the signs and symbols that was part of it that's mm -hmm. it it wasn't just that simple mm -hmm. and i can i can explain to you really what was one of the key things that was a problem. And, and, and I, but just getting back to the, the, the point I was trying to make is um, the weathering was centuries old. Therefore, it eliminated the possibility of a hoax. Therefore, the only possibility is it had to be genuine. Mm. Once I said that, and I came out and said it was genuine, and I wrote it in my report, and I published it. I mean, I gave it to the Runestone Museum and they made it public. Mm. Um, I, I received this wave of criticism. Yeah, all hell broke loose, right? And and they even attacked you personally, didn't all, they? All hell broke loose. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? You know, I yeah. I, I had no idea. But I, I, I pretty quickly, I figured it out. So at that point, I got, I quite frankly, I got pissed off. Yeah, of course. And I said, okay, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I could not understand where the pushback was, and make no mistake, Al, I'm not above making a mistake or, or an error. Mm -hmm. And by God, if I've made an error, I want to know about it because I'll fix it, okay? Mm. But but the pushback I got, they, they weren't asking about, you know, the weathering study. They weren't asking about the minerals. They weren't asking about the work, about the work I did. They just didn't like the results, I'm sorry. And, and you know, that that's when they have to re resort to smears. Well, ex well, look, if you can't attack the evidence, you attack the person, right? Mm. I mean, that's, Kill the messenger. Yeah, kill the messenger, of course. But And that's what prompted me to go, okay, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So at that point, I used simple logic, right? And here's mm. the logic. If this thing is genuine, that means somebody carved it. They came from some place for some reason. Those are absolute truths if this thing is authentic. Mm. So I just simply followed the evidence trail. 
And at that point, starting in 2003, the runestone came into my lab in 2000. I made five trips in two and a half years to Sweden, and I found everything. All the language, the runes, the dialect and grammar. And the reason I took those trips is because the rock told me it was real. Therefore, everything in that inscription must be medieval. Must be recorded somewhere, yes. Has to be there. And mm. guess what? It was. Of mm. course, all that did was just piss off the academics even more because I had the audacity to go in their backyard mm. and find what they were too lazy to look for. Exactly. Why? Because, because it wasn't just... Because they'd already reached a conclusion. Yes, yes, but hang on, hang on. It wasn't just the Minnesotan University that had oh, no. dismissed it. Even Swedish academicians had done this, right? Oh, yeah. They were, the, they, were the, they were the loudest complainers. They were the worst. And you know why? Because they... They have vested interests because this is supposed to be their expertise, their line of expertise. Absolutely. Let me tell you about a doctor who was Swedish, who was called Sigur Agrell. Okay. Do you know him? I do not. He lived a hundred years ago. No. Nope. Well, he was a top-notch academic who specialized in runes, a Norse. Oh, what was his name? Sigurd Agrell. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yes, I have heard that name. Yes. He made some excellent books. The problem is that he experienced the same thing as you. They didn't like his work, so they tried to smack him down. And that was much easier 100 years ago than today because oh, sure. we have Internet today, right? Well, that's part of the saving grace of the Internet. Yes. Yeah. So I think uh, I, th I, I don't know too much about his bio, but I I'm, have a notion that he was like bitter and, and forlorn at the end. But right. he did some great work. And the friends I have who are into runes, like, you know, for spiritual purposes, they hold him in high esteem because, uh, okay, sure. because he discovered a lot of stuff that goes against academic mainstream. And what you have to understand here, folks, is that... On this area, as in almost all areas, there will always be this establishment who degenerates into dogmatism and religion, right? Absolutely. I, I say religion, but what I mean is a faith-based system. No, no, system. no. The word is religion. It's yeah. a faith. It's a belief. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it, it is dogma is absolutely the right word. And it was something that I had never been exposed to. And it was it was quite shocking. But... Mm. Look, I, I don't even worry about it anymore um, because I realize now that, um, you know, if you're if you're going to make a difference, it, it's not going to be an easy road. You're going to have pushback. And if you don't get pushback, then you're not doing something right is the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah, now. that's good. That's a good point. <laughs> All these haters tells me I've done something right. Yeah, exactly. So let's, yeah. <laughs> let's backtrack. And that's what I say to people. I go, just go on the internet, Google my name. You'll find there's people that dedicate dedicate you know a, a big part of their lives to 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 attacking me well mm. that means i'm that means i'm onto something that's the way i look at it mm -hmm. yeah instead of trying to prove instead of spending that energy for research exactly. is amazing exactly and by the way scott you know they're very fond of using the word conspiracy theory these pseudo skeptics but they are the ones who jump to it because when they claim that the runestone is a hoax, for example. I mean, wh why do they even turn to words like hoax? Yes. Because something can be 
not real without being manufactured with deceit in mind. And I'm not saying this about the runestone, of course. I'm just saying every time they think something isn't real, they go to the hoax explanation. And that's a conspiracy theory. For sure, That's yeah. exactly the definition of a conspiracy theory. Well, you're right. And you know what it is. It, it, it doesn't even have even the, any resemblance of some type of a dignified response. I mean, you can disagree with something and still be somewhat dignified, right? I mean, yeah. why are to come up with the most radical hyperbole you can you can think of? And it's, you know, it, it's just, it's first of all, it's unnecessary, let alone not true. But it's like, why, why do you have to go to such extremes to try to make your point, right? And, and and this is also what skeptics do. You know, they, they call it a hoax. Well, suddenly by, by saying it's a hoax, you, which you're implying that somebody created this with the intention to deceive. Exactly. How the hell would you know that? You wouldn't know that. No, no. Uh, you need evidence for to back up such a, a hypothesis, yeah. which they don't have. Now, even skeptics, most skeptics even agree that the chap who discovered the stone couldn't have perpetrated any and and you know what for as an investigator when you take olaf Ullman out of the picture mm. now you really are stretching it because i said from the very beginning when i first was getting my head around the history of this thing mm. i said well if if there's a hoax going on this guy's involved somehow some way and i i said that from the very beginning well you mean the, the discoverer olaf olaf Ullman. Yeah, okay yeah I mean, he's got to be involved. I mean, you know, he he didn't find somebody else's practical joke under the roots of a tree, right? But it's impossible that he 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 was involved in anything well, like exactly. this. And even the skeptics concede that. Well, yeah. I mean, at this point, it's ridiculous to even make such a claim. But look, there's no reason to even talk about it. The nobody, are- nobody earned money on it. Nobody got famous for it. Nobody had any personal incentive whatsoever or ideological sure, because sure. the big deal came much later because in the beginning they thought it was uh, uh, unauthentic, right? Right. Very early on. At the very, well, at the very outset, people, they didn't know what it was. I mean, there was no reason to question it until... Uh, Olus Breda was the first scholar at the University of Minnesota to weigh in on it. And for crying out loud, he didn't even he didn't even understand what the numbers were. I mean, if you look at his early translation, which I have and it's mm. published in my first runestone book, he didn't even know what they were. So he had an incomplete translation and he screwed up the translation on top of it. And, and I mean, there's no way I would have drawn any conclusion without understanding everything that was in there right question marks i can't i can't write a final report when i have nothing but question marks yeah and no nobody made money from this right no well the only guy that made money was uh well he never got his money either helmer holen but Mm. um he we knew that he wasn't part of it he he and he never purchased the stone from olaf omen he uh olaf omen gave it to him and said you know after you're done studying it give it to the um, uh, the, he said the Norwegian Historical Society. There was no such thing at the time. He mm. meant the uh, Minnesota Historical Society. But in any case, Helmer Holland didn't do that. Mm. Um, he got it from him in 1907. And then in 1908 or 1909, he offered it to the Minnesota Historical Society for $5,000. Mm. You know how much money that would be back then? Yeah, lots. Millions mm. in today's dollars. But anyway, it, they didn't it's, pay him. 
No, no. There was an investigation, and that's when uh, that's when Winchell got involved. And so this chap Yolma tried to make money out of it. He tried to make money, but it it mm. never panned out. But but Olaf certainly would have no competence to do something like this. Uh, no. What about this Yalma dude? Was he refined enough? Helmer Holland was was a was a scholar. Yeah, he he wrote. I think he wrote. I think I've got seven all seven of his books. And um, uh, yeah, he fought for its authenticity. Now looking back, his oh, he fought for the authenticity. Ah, interesting. He was for authenticity, absolutely. Right, right. He believed it was real. But what was he in, in, involved in the discovery process? No, 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 no. What happened was Olaf Oman found it in 1898, and then it was sent to be studied in um, 19, uh, 1899. Went to Minnesota. And uh, Olaf Breda looked at it, and he, he couldn't figure it out. He said, oh, this is a clumsy hoax. And that set a very important precedent, right? Mm. Because he was a respected scholar. But really what he did was just was, was, was fraud, essentially. I mean, if you don't even know what the characters are, how can you evaluate it? How yeah, can you yeah, say, yeah, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, so then it was returned to Olaf Oman, and he put it in the shed. And it was there for the next 10 years. <clears throat> until well, until August of 1907, when um, Ho uh, Helmer Holland was uh, doing research, and he was traveling in the you know in the counties up there, talking to Norwegian immigrants mm. for his book uh, that he eventually did write about Norwegian settlement. And he was talking to somebody, and they said, you know, you should go talk to Olaf Oman. He's got a stone that has, you know, Norse writing on it. And so he went and saw him and he looked at the stone. He recognized they were runes and then he tried to buy it. And Olaf said, no, it's not for sale. But if you want to take it and study it, make sure it ends up in the Minnesota Historical Society. Mm, okay. Mm. Well, and then, you know, the rest is history after that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, but let's backtrack to the stone then. Sure. So, so here you are. They call you in. You, you take a look at it. You, and and a I think it was an advantage that you didn't know. At least it's an advantage in terms of nobody can, can claim that, oh, but they used a researcher who was biased, positively biased, right? No. No, they absolutely – well, the truth is, Al, it, it, even if I had heard about it, um, it wouldn't have made a difference, but I guess it was. I didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And for your attitude and work, right. but but that, then they they could have said like, if you have heard about it, they could have said like, yeah, but no, he was. They would have said it. Now I realize they would have said it. They would have exactly. So 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 they didn't get that one at least. So my point is just uh, that's an advantage. So right. there you are. You find out this thing is real, and then you ask the basic questions that you posed five minutes ago. Now where do you go from here? Well, okay. Um, so I go to Sweden, and and we find everything. Now what was really really important is that, um, and I was working with. At the time, I was working with the person who is now considered in Sweden the top, the top runologist in the world, Professor Henrik Williams, and um, and another uh, uh, engineer and a scientist by the name of Richard Nielsen. He and I co-authored a book, uh, my first book um, on the runestone called "The Kensington Runestone: Compelling New Evidence," five hundred and seventy-four pages. And it was those two guys working in conjunction with them 
where I learned about runes and, and language and dialect and grammar and all of this. I mean, I don't consider myself... So, so these two chaps were mainstream Swedish scholars? Yes. And they backed your well, work? But, uh, Dick was an American, Henrik was Swedish. But but Henrik had a lot of respect for Dick because Dick was uh, an, a basic, you know, pardon my, pun, my my verbiage, but he was an anal retentive engineer. <laughs> and he dug into the old <laughs> Swedish diplomas that I remember Henrik saying at one point, he said... He said, we don't even want to read those things because they're so boring. Mm. But Dick was just had the dog, you know, the dog determination right. to, to, to dig into these things. And he found many of these rare medieval language features that are found on the runestone and were unknown previously. So, so Dick, who is Dick? Dick Nielsen. He, Dick has passed away a couple of years ago, but he was the, the person who had studied the Kensington runestone for 25 years before he contacted me. Ah, so he was, uh, uh, he's an American, and he was he's one of these pro-Kensington yeah. people. And he was, he was probably the most knowledgeable person in the world at that time on the Kensington runestone. And, and even though Dick and I eventually had um, a falling out, um, I, I will never criticize... Uh, the work that he did, the discoveries that we made together. And it really was the collaboration of the disciplines. Yeah. Me as a geologist and a forensic scientist and Henrik and Dick as, as runologists. So Henrik is a Swedish runologist and yep, Richard is an American. Yes. Okay. Yep. So the three of us really did this work, but... Um, and and there was there was so many good things that happened, but what I learned from them was that um, in medieval times, the only person that could have carved an inscription of this complexity and length had to have been a member of the clergy, because the common people weren't educated in the 14th century, right? Okay, so so we have to date the runestone now. Yeah, I was just going to say the runestone's dated 1362. Yeah, right. I, I saw that in the movie Holy Grail in America, where Correct. you are heavily figuring. By the way, folks, watch that movie because it illuminates so much of what our series is touching upon, too. And it's a great uh, movie or documentary, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's a movie we saw it when the when the movie premiered. We went to a a movie theater and watched it and had a yeah. party. It was just a grand event, yeah. and and it really did well. And and even after, my gosh, it's been over ten years, maybe eleven years now. Um, it was a it was a good effort, and the production company did a great job, and and history supported us, History Channel, and yeah, I'm very they, they, they aired it there. Who was the production company? Committee Films, and they're located literally five minutes from my house. Oh, okay. In fact, when I met them, this is this is how this movie came about. Mm-hmm. I was actually in my office. I was working on a murder case. And it, it got some attention because some of the work we did with the concrete, a, a murder victim had been found uh, buried in a shallow grave in the desert outside of Las Vegas, Jeez. Uh, totally encased in concrete. Wow. So what they asked us to do was to try and age date the concrete using our forensic techniques and, and uh, to try to establish a time of death so they could 
identify the victim. Just out of fun, if if a body, a corpse, is yeah. completely enveloped by concrete, wouldn't that slow down the decay? Yes, it would. However, this person was not 100% totally encased. Uh-huh. There were gaps in the side because right. there were multiple placements of concrete. Mm. And they, they did not, they placed it with such a low slump. It was so stiff when they placed it, it didn't consolidate. Mm. So this allowed air to get in. And this was all part of the analysis that caused the decomposition. Mm. Um, and it also produced some carbonation and some chemical reactions in the concrete that actually were time dependent. And so I was able to use those chemical reactions as a clock. Mm. And actually, they were able to identify the victim. And when they did finally establish a time of death, it matched almost perfectly with the number I gave them. So nice. it was, I remember, I, was, I remember talking to him and I said, Jesus Christ, this stuff actually works. <laughs> <laughs> but right. in any case, Maria Oz, who, whose husband was the person who was just starting this, this production company. She was an investigative reporter with a local television station. And she came to interview me about the murder case. Mm. And she walked into my office. Well, I had just come back from, I think, my last trip to Sweden doing the research on the runestone. And I had this poster of this special exposition exposition that of the runestone that, that occurred when we were there. And she looked at it and she saw the runestone. She said, oh. Um, have you done work on the Kensington Runestone? So she was one of the locals who were educated on their own mysteries. She knew about it. She knew about it. And, and I just looked at her and I said, huh, sit down. <laughs> this is going to take a while. Right. Well, we sat and talked for two hours. And then she went home. She told Andy, her husband, she said, oh, my God, this is such an interesting story. We should do something with him. He came to one of my lectures a couple weeks later And uh, he said, you want to go to lunch? And we went to a local restaurant and uh, and we decided we wanted to do this documentary. We raised the money and History Channel picked it up and put a lot more money into it. And that's 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 how it happened. Hmm. Excellent. And they were the ones that did the second movie. And they're the ones that did America on Earth. And uh, what's the second movie called? uh, Who really discovered America? Right, so you take the consequences of the first movie and you exactly. explore that further. Correct, yep, exactly. Uh, you're probably familiar with the Norwegian scholar, he's dead now, but uh, his name was Helge Ingstad. Helge Ingstad, yes, he's stub- uh, he and his wife really deserve credit for uh, Lanza Meadows. Yes, uh, because he and his wife, I have a, a book of them, uh, they documented, that there can be no doubt, I don't know why this isn't in all... Uh, basic uh, school books because there can be no doubt that the Vikings came to America. It, it is starting before. It, yeah, it's start. It, it's starting to change now. That that is really becoming the norm now. I mean, it is ridiculous. Actually, we did an episode of my show America on Earth on Lonsa Meadows, and my guest was Brigida Wallace. Do you know Brigida? No. She was the one that basically was the archaeologist back in the 1960s who who worked with the Ingsteads oh. and. And, uh, you know, made a lot of the important discoveries based on their initial research. And, and you got her on the show. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and I've known Brigitte for a long time because when I first got involved in the Runestone, they had a special um, exhibition 
and a conference around just the Roomstone. And I spoke at that conference, and oh my God, you'll never, you won't believe some of the stuff that happened there. Honest to God, mm-hmm. I I gave a lecture about my findings. Right, this was in November of two thousand, mm-hmm. and this was when there was an exhibition going around the world at the time. It was just coincidental, called the North Atlantic Saga, and the Smithsonian Institution published a uh, a, a big volume that was like the book they were selling with the exhibition going around to the different cities. And Brigitte Wallace and uh, uh, William Fitzhugh at the Smithsonian, they were the ones that co-authored that book. And they wrote a chapter call, um, about the North American runestones and the Kensington runestone, the Spirit Pond and all this. Mm-hmm. And, and it was real short. There were 29 factual errors that were just wrong. I mean, just, and and it was just a hack job. Mm. So Brigida, when I met her at the conference, had a preconceived negative notion about the runestone. And of course she treated me like I was this cute little boy that didn't really know what he was talking about. Very condescending. And I mean, it was, it was insulting. Right. And as you said before, archaeology is a soft science discipline okay i hate to break it to you archaeologists but you know you use all these you know words scientific words and we use proper scientific method but you know what the evidence shows that you don't okay yeah you're giving them too much credit calling it science it's it's (laughs) degenerated into a religion in many cases well exactly and i when you said that i i can say look look brother i have lived it Mm. And I know exactly what you're talking about. But getting back to that conference early on, when I when I when I gave the presentation, I remember I walked in. I was with my wife and with the director of the Runestone Museum who was there. And we brought the Runestone to this conference so they could see it. Right. Mm. Oh, you actually were allowed to bring the stone itself. Yeah. Back wow. then. Back then, we were they were pretty loosey-goosey with it, not anymore. Yeah, because they thought it was just crap anyway, right? <laughs> well, and, well look, I remember, you know how I, I had to take a core sample out of the back of it uh-huh. so I could make thin sections to properly identify the um, the mineralogy, right? And, mm. and, and I basically, people were like, oh, my God, you're going to cut a hole in it? And I said, look, by, by this time, right, I, I, I learned enough to know that it was considered a hoax. And I said, look, I said, Everybody considers this a hoax, right? Well, yeah. I said, okay, then you've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Hmm. So I did. But when I went into that conference, I remember I went to the registration desk, and all I wanted to ask them is what room am I speaking in, right? Hmm. The state archaeologist at the time was was the guy that I didn't know this at the time. I found out later he was the then state archaeologist. I walked up and I, I and, and I said, is is Bill Fitzhugh, uh, not Bill Fitzhugh. It was, uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm drawing a blank. But I asked, I knew what his name was, but I didn't know what he looked like. Mm-hmm. So I asked somebody there and they said, oh, he's right here. So he came walking up and he said, hello. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm Scott Walter. I'm looking for the room. And he just turned and put his face up against the wall. I'm not kidding. I am not making this up. My wife, he just like, turned. like theatrics. I don't understand what's the. No, he was okay. So imagine you're 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 you and I are face to face, right? Yeah, yeah. I told him my name, and then he just threw his head back, 
turned 90 degrees and faced this little wall that was right next to the table. He wouldn't look at me. Jeez. And he goes, you're in room 249 or whatever. And he, he just, my wife was standing right there. To this day, we, we, I, I cannot believe it. It yeah. was like, he didn't even know me. <laughs> well, obviously your reputation had Apparently. preceded you. <laughs> but what did he do there? If he was so against it, why did he bother showing up? Well, he was he was one of one of the organizers of this thing. It was archae it was an archaeological conference. So so anyway, and, and still and still he was one of the organizers. And still, they invited you on. Well, I, I, he wasn't the one that invited me. Somebody else. Did. No right. And and yeah, okay. so anyway, so I gave the talk, and the thing was packed. Right. Um, mm. And I had no idea. I, I still didn't really understand the gravity, although that experience I had just a few minutes earlier um, mm. helped me understand a little bit. But I'll never mm. forget when I got done, half the people in the room were like, oh, my God, this changes history. And the other half were like, oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. And, mm. and, and, I'm, mm. I, and I had people coming up to me and I'm like, well, that's the, it's a hoax, you know. I said, well. Didn't you hear what I just said? And mm. and other people came up and were like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" And it was just it was it was black and white. It was it was it was a bizarre. That's all I can. Uh, it is, and, and you know, I mentioned to you Peter Amundsen before we start that, and he's had an exact same experience as you, right. only in other fields of academia, especially. Because his thing is about codes and documents and literature. And my God, the dogma. And that's the, the good thing is it's so displayed in his because they interview these people and you don't have to know anything about the subject. You see the movies, you see the TV series, and it's obvious for everyone to see that we are dealing with a bunch of fanatics emotionally based fanatics and that kind of wakes people up to the because you know especially before people used to think oh scholars oh they know everything right but we have to use the human uh, evaluation on uh, you know nobody is gods on this earth or everybody is gods if you like so so we can't just we can't just elevate them due to a degree we have to listen to the case what is the work what's it about and then we have to consider all the human factors that you have been suffering from too well yeah it was it was really an education for me i fully understand it now and um and it's too bad because we're really wasting a lot of time and, and, and knowledge. And, you know, look, these people that we're talking about, they're not stupid people, right? They have their skills and they have their knowledge. And Yeah, but I think they have low, uh, not IQ, but EQ, you know, emotional right, um, right. intelligence. Well, they're insecure in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. And look at uh, your friend, uh, Graham Hancock. He's really been in the vanguard, in the trenches oh, yeah. on this. Yep. And and he's taken a lot of criticism unfairly, and you know there have been a couple times where I I, I don't want to say that he he reacted emotionally um, when he when he he didn't need to you know, but yeah. but at the same time when when people come after you, look I'm an old ball player right I played football for years and I was a linebacker I'm used to you know if somebody challenges me it's like okay let's go right and. You can't do that. You know, the, you, you have to um, be the, the adult in the room. Yeah, you have to be the adult, right? And, and I, I'm not used to that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, but it 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 really is um, what I call the the human condition has more yeah. impact on our lives, on research and science than it should. Yeah, and that people are aware uh, but, of. But but it, it is what it is. It's it's a it's just yeah. the way. And it I is. recommend all our listeners to uh, Google or go to YouTube and check. Graham Hancock's clash with actually Hancock did nothing but this psychopath uh, Sahi Havas typical representative look at him go really unhinged just exploding in the face of uh, the facts Graham Hancock presents Hancock is so measured and calm at least in that instance yeah and Havas is just, you know, the, the mosques is falling off. That's what we're dealing with, folks. But truth will out. Yes. And the good thing with people like you, Scott, is that you are using this tool we call science. And as long as you stick to that, you will eventually win the battle against these. Oh, I, I have no doubt. It Look, the, the old phrase, um, the truth will eventually bubble to the surface. It always does. And I know it will in this case. But and to be quite frank with you, Al, it's happening at a faster rate than I thought. It, it, I'm really starting to see some momentum. Um, you know, the the show has been a real driver of that, and I appreciate so much having that opportunity and the people that have reached out to me. Um, I just feel like there's there's a lot of really good things happening, and you know, for crying out loud, I, I, I you said it before, a lot of this is driven by fear, right? Mm. Well, I don't really know what people have to fear. And if you're a true scientist, right, if new evidence comes in that dictates or indeed demands a new conclusion, you go there. And and it doesn't mean that you're stupid if you had a previous conclusion. It means you didn't have the evidence you had before. And if the new evidence comes in and you accept it, that's a true scientist, right? I agree. That's the way it works. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you're smart. And so this is what I, I wish more of these people would understand, but but they just don't. And it's, it's too bad. No, but the, the problem, uh, and it's not just scientists, is that many people, uh, they don't have a genuine uh, identification uh, measure for themselves. They identify with their thoughts, with their ideas. Yeah. And so if uh, something is, uh, you see that very evident in Peter Amundsen's case too. So if something attacks, let's say you really believe that Will Shakespeare, the crook Will Shakespeare authored the Shakespearean art. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's your, you know, it's, it's your bread and butter. It's what you've been written thesis on. And then some hack comes from another country even. And it shows you evidence. It's not so simple. They feel you might as well just go and kick them in the in the belly. Yeah. It's kind of that's how the it's an attack on their identification. It's not you're attacking ideas or dogmas or falsehoods. No, you're attacking them. They take it personally. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. By the way, you talked about this archaeologist woman who worked with Ingsta. Let's backtrack to there. Oh, Brigitte. She was present on your, uh, this infamous lecture of yours? Yeah, she was there. She was there. I didn't know her. That was the first time I met her. And, you know, she was kind of a rock star to a lot of these archaeologists because she had worked on this famous site, right? Lonzo Meadows. And she was very charming. And, um, but I, 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 oh, I remember I just thought of something. So after my lecture, which was the last lecture of the afternoon prior to the cocktail hour before dinner, 
And I wasn't going to stay for dinner because I was only there for the lecture, but I got invited to have a drink. So mm-hmm. we went in there, my wife and I, and I remember somebody brought me up to Brigida Wallace. And I met Brigida. And she didn't really know who I was at the time either, although she had just heard my lecture. Mm-hmm. And she was just beginning to uh, talk to me about the lecture, literally. And she was, I, I, and to her credit, she was very charming and she was engaging. And all of a sudden, and I'm telling you, Al, I'm not making this up. That state archaeologist that turned his head to the wall, <laughs> he came swooping in, grabbed yeah. her by the back of the arm, went between her and I and my wife, and he just grabbed her and he said, come along, Brigitte, we have to, we have to eat now. What a child. And he whisked her off and she just went, what? Yeah. It was like he had to rescue her from me. Yeah. Oh, he's going to taint her. He's going to taint her. I, oh, my God. <laughs> Guess what? We were just going to make small talk and get to know each other. If she asked me about the runestone, I would have answered her question. I wasn't going to bring it up. But this is a cocktail hour, right? This is a social thing. But no, I'm apparently I was too dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might even uh, take a liking to you. And uh, wow, oh, heaven forbid, heaven forbid that. (laughs) Yeah, but did she? uh, Did you get the notion of uh, how she reacted to your info? Yes, I did because uh, years later. I went up to visit her on my own and I visited her at her home up in Nova Scotia and she was quite gracious. She and her husband welcomed me into their home. They made us a nice meal, but um, she just was very, um, she was nervous and she just did not, did not want to accept what I was there for. And I, I, and I, I, I knew that there was a potential for, for conflict because she wasn't welcoming like mm. uh, my research. She was very nice personally. I have nothing but good things to say about her personally, but she was very, um, uh, she was not at ease talking to me and she, she didn't really want to talk about the details of the runestone because she couldn't. Right. Mm. But she was standing by her position that it was a hoax. And I. Well, you know, she's an old timer. And so she yeah. would know that you are finished if you, you know, if you step on certain dogmas. The history is full. We actually have another series, apart from this one that you're present in now, that has to do with the crisis of academia. And, okay. And there's so many fates. You know, sincere researchers who are naive and don't know that you can't uh, swear in church, they become iconoclasts without intending it, you know. Right. And they're done for. They're dead in terms of career. But some of them, in private, they would admit. Oh, sure. Like, oh, oh, sure. This is interesting. But she didn't even do that. Well, she was... She, uh, no, she wouldn't. No, she did not go there. She would not go there. And then years later, um, when we had her on the episode, um, you know, we knew each other and we were we were cordial as uh, on a personal level. But there was still that angst, you know, about our yeah. professional um, journeys that we were on and what we believed to be. And I look, I, I, I was I give her nothing but credit for Lonsa Meadows. And I said, well, could they have traveled farther south? And she said, yes. And I said, well, if they were here in the 10th and 11th centuries, 
why couldn't they have been here in the 14th century? Exactly. It's such a small step. It's such a small step. Well, well think about this, though, Al. Think about this. What, what academia wants us to accept is that the Vikings were here, like I said, in the 9th, 10th, maybe even the 11th centuries, right? 11th centuries. Mm. But then nothing happened for 500 years until Chris came over. Mm. I mean, think about that. It's crazy. That doesn't even pass. That. I remember I did the math in my head and I go, 500 years, nothing happened. But these guys came over here multiple times on the northern route. Like they just gave up. They just mm. said, oh, I guess we're not going to go there anymore. I, I, it just didn't make sense. Well, well, there is there is one case for not 500 years of silence, but there, you know, there was this small ice age. Oh, sure, and sure. In Bergen, my hometown, there was a uh, very popular in, I think it was in the 1600s, they were sitting in the tavernas discussing where the Greenland Vikings ended up. Right. Uh, b- because back then they didn't know for sure, you know, most uh, likely they went to, to further south, right, in America, because they didn't come back to Iceland. Correct, yeah. So the, there is a case for having less traffic then because the boats couldn't just cross directly uh, across the yeah, I know what you Atlantic. Mean. They had no, to... No, the island hopped, you know, you, you yeah. go to Rock Hall, you go to Iceland, you go to Greenland and... Yeah. Yeah, but there is this map that the Vikings, the the Earl of Orkney, yeah. got it uh, from the Vikings, and he was married, I think, into Columbus' family. Yep, the Drummond fed the Drummonds. Yeah. Yeah. So you know about this, Columbus right? Columbus did. Columbus did. Yeah. Yeah, Columbus married into his. So, so obviously, if. Columbus got this stuff. Uh, when was Columbus again? Uh, what was the year? 1492. Yeah. So, obviously, it was still uh, fresh, uh, kind of. It wasn't like uh, something he found in a godforsaken monastery somewhere far away, well, right? Well, but back up a second here. Many people don't don't know this, but Columbus was in the North Atlantic. And for 30 days in 1477, he basically was missing, right? Mm. So the question is, where'd he go? Well, I think he went to the Western lands, just like Earl Henry Sinclair um, had already been. And the Templars had been multiple times prior to him. So so he probed it before he uh, suggested to go there officially? Well, he was definitely in the North Atlantic. There's no question about that as as far as Greenland. That's documented. But he Mm. was there for 30 days, and there's really no no record, no mention of what he did up there. And and 30 days would be sufficient to go back and forth, right? Oh, are you kidding me? Absolutely. Well, from Greenland, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a matter of a a couple of days sailing across there. I mean, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I learned about the North Atlantic um, route is, and I learned this from uh, one of my guests on the show. And he said, "Look, if you have the right weather, he said you can go from Iceland to Greenland, and 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 you know, island hop from the Shetlands, the Orkneys, um, Rockall to Iceland to Greenland, and then to uh, uh, North America. If the weather is clear." By the time you get to the point where you can no longer see land from the boat in Iceland where you left, you can now see Greenland. 
Mm. So you would have land kind of within a range all the time. You'd be visually if the weather is cooperative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't often. But what about the opposite? Wouldn't that be even easier? You could just you could just surf the Gulf Stream back? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I look I personally, I believe that there were ancient navigators that were going across the Atlantic, the Egyptians, even. going across all the oceans, and they understood these these sea currents and the winds and 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 you know all the different things that that a sailor would understand. And I think that this is part of the knowledge yeah. that the Templars had that was um, and and the tradition that they came from that was ancient. Um, and yeah, I, I've speculated in this show that the Templars may have visited Oak Island even before they were banished and the fleet. Because when the fleet escaped, no matter where they went, they would have to have like an idea of where they were going, right? And even if they parked in Portugal or Scotland before they really went to America, still they would have to have a pre-notion of... They couldn't just, okay, let's see what's out there. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> would... let me tell you something. We have some uh, documents that we're vetting right now mm-hmm. that um, uh, if, if, they, if they're authentic, and at this point, things seem to be checking out. Um, it talks about where the, the Scottish Templars brought treasure over, where they buried it, and when they recovered it. Um, and I can tell you. Oh, they recovered it too. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> well, not all of it, uh, but but pretty most of it. But but the point is, is that there were such detailed instructions as to where they left these treasures. They've been coming here. The tradition that they were a part of, the Templars mm. were a part of, that goes back literally thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, they were called something else in the past, but they were, they knew all about the, the North America. They knew how to get there. They, they knew all of the, what, well, and they knew about the resources and more importantly than anything, they knew about the indigenous people here that embraced a similar ideology as, as they did. Mm-hmm. And this is the reason why nothing happened quote for 500 years, because they came over here secretly they didn't tell anybody they didn't write it down in obvious places for people to 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 find Mm. because they got along with the natives over here they shared the micmacs right well the Mi'kmaq is up in uh, we say micmac they say Mi'kmaq but the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia area for sure and then you get into the other different Algonquin nations the Ojibwa the Potawatomi um, I mean, there's all kinds of tribes that they interacted with, but but they but they all have their own secret society. It's called the Medewin, and mm. it's 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 essentially Freemasonry. And, and and didn't wasn't it in your movie Holy Grail in America that yeah. you show that the Mi'kmaq flag is yeah. actually a Templar flag? Yep, <laughs> it's just reversed, right? Yeah, one is on the east side, one's on the west side of the Atlantic. And, and the Templars were were already uh, in conflict with the Pope, who was more or less uh, yep, yep. had uh, the power in Europe uh, at the time. So they had to keep things under wraps. Well, that's, look, the, the, the formation of the Templars by the what I call the Venus families, of which Bernard de Clairvaux, who joined the Templar Order in 1113 with 30 family members... Mm. including two of his uncles who were some of those original knights that fought in the first crusade. Um, 
that that event in, in 1113, when Bernard de Clairvaux joined the Cistercian Order with 30 family members the, the, at the first abbey at Citeaux, was what I call the greatest coup d'etat in history that nobody knows about. Mm. Because he founded the first daughter abbey at Clairvaux. And by the time he died in uh, 1158, there were over 300 Cistercian abbeys across Europe into the Holy Land and into Scandinavia. And I don't... Yeah, we are, I, sorry, I just have to say, one of those early Cistercian cloisters I've used with a spiritual group, uh, amazing architecture. And it's round, just like the Temple Round churches. Of course, of course. And in, and as you may or may not know, it was Bernard de Clairvaux who in 1128 wrote the charter for a group called the Knights Templar who are Cistercian, who were Cistercian monks, right? Mm. They just served a different function within the order. And um, in 1129, January of 1129, the Pope uh, issued a papal bull, making them an official order. But make no mistake, the tradition that they were uh, existed long before they were an official order. But how, how come the Cistercians managed to be, to some degree, independent of the Vatican? Well, it, it, they, they, for the simple reason that they pretended to be Catholic. They, they're mon- Yeah, but why weren't they like the Dominicans or, you know, fully on board with uh, all the horrors? Well, look, the reason is because the Cistercians, the true uh, Cistercian tradition, um, embraced a reverence of the sacred feminine, right? The feminine yeah. aspect of the Godhead. That is why Bernard had a fascination with the Virgin Mary, who was just a metaphor for the great goddess that they truly revered. And yeah. so the, the symbols that the Roman church had adopted and had used to create this, this uh, corporation, if you will, mm. um, they just, they just mm. borrowed from older traditions um, and just spun a different story. Yeah, that, that, could, that could bring us into the incredibly interesting story of the Celtic Church and how the right on, how Scandinavia right on. how Scandinavia become Christian. I have a friend who's a researcher who made a great book. Actually, I'm going to I think I'm going to send you his book because it's in English. Oh. I have two copies. I'll send you one of them. It's amazing you, you, stuff, man. You read English, right? Pardon? You read English, of course. Yes, sure, sure. Well, then why don't I, why don't we trade books? I'll send you one of mine. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Great. Okay, deal, deal. Yeah, but I want to give you a teaser so you know why I want to send it to you because I think it's relevant in for the context of your work. Okay. Uh, it's not a very well-known book, not just because it's a local Norwegian who's written it, but he's been so beaten up. Right. But it's called, in the English translation is called The Viking Serpent, Secrets of the Celtic Church in Norway, Their Serpent Worship, and Sacred Pentagram Geometry. Oh, oh, that'd be good. That would be good. Now, here's the thing. He shows that the reason that the Vikings became Christians overnight, basically, yeah, was, if it was Catholicism, it would never have worked. Right, right, but... Right. You know the Celtic Church. Uh, yep. First off, they have their own tradition that Jesus actually came with Jacob, his father, you know, long before the crucifixion. To the British Isles. 
Exactly. So they, they have, have that heresy. Yep. And they also have priests from Egypt and Syria who started basically the church very, very early on. Right. Even before the Catholics. So here's the thing he discovered. The Celtic church was not crushed in the 600s, 700s. Right. They lingered on. Independent enclaves lingered on all the way to the 1100s. Right. And they, when they lost territory to the Catholics, because there was ever-going power battle, as you know, all over Europe, all sorts of... Sure. And what they did was that they sent their people and converted... Uh, the Norwegians. Oh, right. And so right. the first Christians in Norway was Celtic. And it's so interesting because you can all, of, often read history from the, uh, in, f- through the eyes of your enemies if they win, right? Right. Just like we know about Gnostics basically through church fathers <laughs> condemnation, right? Right. Uh, and the same way here, there were papal bulls against the Norwegian churches uh, up until they murdered a Norwegian archbishop and finally got their first foothold in Norway. Okay. And the interesting thing is this overlaps with, uh, uh, to put it like this, the last uh, independent Celtic church was in Norway. Yeah. And the last remnants of that lingered on until after the Kensington runestone time. So they were crushed, like, I think in the 1200s, but fragment of it lingered on to uh, the 1300s. Right. Basically, the Black Plague marks, you know, the time between when stuff was interesting and when decay was fully... We lost the literal class, for example, people who could read and write. Uh And a black plague, uh, you know, 1349 in Norway to 1350. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to tell you another thing. A book that was written by a Norwegian professor, a historian. And it was like a jubilee book for the city of Bergen. Okay. So he he didn't mean to write about what I'm going to tell you. But he was puzzled about it and mentioned it but didn't have the context to understand it. Okay. Because he was a geek knowing everything about Bergen history. And here's the thing. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. Read history through your adversaries. The church and the king were terrified by the, uh, what you call, guilds. Oh, yeah. Because although it was just the clerics and the nobility who could read and write, there was also, especially in Bergen, power pockets of educated men who were into crafts and they could read and write which worried the secular powers of the king and his henchmen because it meant potential revolution if you have a group of people who can read and write and have resources you know the, the, the king was afraid they would plot political revolution and the church was afraid they would plot spiritual revolution because these men were accused of uh, this very in- one interesting banishment from the church where they say that these men years before the templars were officially founded they had uh, uh, still doing norse worship this is in the year when was the templar founded 1107 uh, well it, it, it officially 1128 
the bowl was, but they were, they existed before that. Yeah. And this was... January of 1129, officially, officially. Okay, so this was in the early 1100s. There were pockets of uh, educated, practical men who still worked with runes and the Norse religion. Wow. Officially, the Norse religion was dead in the 1100s. Yeah. And the, the accusations against them, when you see how they describe it, it's just like a lodge and an order. Oh, is that right? And that's so weird because I thought that started with the Templars. No, 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 no. No, I mean, not a secret uh, mystery school thing, but this way of uh, guilds, temples, lodges, secret lore, initiation, stuff like that. Right, it was, right. It was very remis- reminiscent of Templars when I read it. Or only they were doing Norse stuff. Now, here's the interesting thing. These problems lingered for 200 years because you can re- read sporadic banishment and even laws declared. The king uh, had to make new laws just to crush them. Right. And the last one was after the Templars were dissolved. Okay. So this proves at least one thing, and that is that it was possible to form esoteric brotherhoods who worshipped spiritual currents not approved by the church, all the way even before the Templars until after the Templars. Oh, believe me, I'm, I'm well aware of and that. If this could happen in remote, little, poor Norway, obviously this would also be... a able to go on in Scotland, in Portugal, in the Baltics, all over the place, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And the Cremona document has to be digested by people. Um, And and the Sinclair journals, there more and more information keeps coming to us. And it's just, it's just amazing. The gist of the message is very clear. And in fact, in our journals, it's clear that uh, the Scots are practicing Celtic rituals, and they talk about them. Right. In, in some, I mean, these these documents are just amazing. So, no question that, that there, there's there's Celtic, um, uh, you know, Celtic views are, are are still being practiced. And but what's interesting is they talk about the quote old religion and the new religion, and how they 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 have to incorporate elements of both depending on who they interact with in their society. You know, they, the church yeah. was on the press, and so. The new religion, you know, they had to be up on Catholicism, but it's it, it's clear that what was in their heart was was their Celtic their Celtic roots. Yeah, and and according to the chap who wrote the Viking Serpent book, I'm going to send you. He says that they were basically Gnostics, and they were celebrating what you call the sacra feminine. He, I don't think he used that description, but when you read it, you see it's the same thing. Yeah, that's what it is. I, I know that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember the Cremona document. You got to read that. Mm. <laughs> you need to read that. I oh, will. Really? Um, I know you used this uh, document in your uh, book Akhenaton to the Founding Fathers. Oh yeah, and this uh, this covers a huge part of the unknown history of the Templars. It covers. It covers pretty much. Uh, that covers. Uh, a, a, well, part of what they discuss is a firsthand narrative. Of the uh, six, six Templars that went under the south wall of uh, the temple in Jerusalem and found a tomb. I don't believe they found anything. I think they knew exactly what they were looking for. Mm. But it describes the Templar treasure that was there. And the reason I say that was there, that treasure is not 
all of the treasure because the Crusades, the main mission of the Crusades from the Templar standpoint was to uh, was the Holy Land was a, a strategic uh, outpost, if you will, a base of operations in the Middle East where they could go round stuff up. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's what their mission was. They didn't. And, and when when the Templars were defeated, quote in quotes, um, in the latter part of the 12th century, that's B.S. They gave it up because they were done. They had gotten everything that they wanted mm. and they turned they turned their attention west. Mm. Right. But let's go back to your story. Sure. Yep. So let's just uh, complete the story of the Kensington runestone. Okay. I've heard, like I said in intro, in the beginning, uh, oh, it's genuine. Oh, no, it's not genuine after all. And I have a, an acquaintance, I call him, because I wouldn't regard him as a friend, but he's like into runes and stuff. And he's one of these dogmatists that, no, 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 they're Kensington runestone. That's, uh, yeah, they, they thought it was genuine, but it's not genuine after all. So, so what's the movements that been there because uh, that makes people go back and forth on that? Well, I, I think it has to do with, with, with the, which way the wind is blowing that day. Um, <laughs> because it's not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of fact. And, you know, I, I have to tell you that, you know, the, the, the Templars – were responsible for placing the Kensington runestone as a land claim. There's no, there's no question about that. At least not in my mind. All mm. the evidence points to them and only them. And the evidence trail that I follow followed led to the Cistercians because on the island of Gotland, where almost every single piece of linguistic evidence was, there was only one clergy: the Cistercians. Mm. The Cistercians mm. founded the Knights Templar Order. Bernard de Clairvaux. Fact. Fact. And so it went straight to them and nobody else but them. And as it turns out, they had the means, they had the motivation, um, they had the money, um, and they had the knowledge. And and so everything fits as it must Mm -hmm. if you have the correct answer. I do logic, you know, forensic investigations for a living, 35 years. I know how this works, okay? Mm -hmm. And so – when somebody says to me that it's fake, I say, okay, tell me why. Mm. When they start to rattle it off, well, you know what I usually hear? Well, everybody knows. What kind of an evidence is that? That's not <laughs> it is known. It is known. That, <laughs> that's what the superstitious people say. Hey, everyone knows, right? No. Yeah. Tell me specifically what it is yeah. that makes it a hoax. And I can guarantee you there is not one scholar on this planet today that is going to be able to refute what we have with any evidence because I, I can stick with them on the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, um, everything. They will not. And notwithstanding the geology of it. Well, the geology, they can't argue with me on because no. it's solid. Exactly. Yeah. But one of the things they tried to use in the beginning that, that gave you some problems, we're going to get back to that in part two, but that's the mysterious hooked X. Oh, yeah. But we're going to get back to that. I don't want us to, to go there yet oh, no, because let's, let's it's a save, big... Let's say that because yeah. um, the journey that I've taken with the Hooked X is nothing short of amazing. And in my latest book, which just came out, um, I believe I have found 
the origin of it that the Templar that that what the Templars discovered that convinced them that this was going to be the iconic symbol that would represent their mission, their ideology, their sacred symbol that would really represent them. Nice. And it's it's an amazing story. So what's that book called? The book is called Cryptic Code of the Templars in America, Origins of the Hooked X. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to get back to the Hooked X, and I'm going to air with you some old documents I have here on it. But we'll, we'll get back to that in part two. I'm looking but, forward to that. Yeah. By the way, the Kensington Runestone, what does it actually say when you translate it? It says eight... And, and it's it's a pentatic numbering system that is found on the Kensington runestone. This is one of the problems that the scholars had. I would mention to you that the pentatic number numbering system is actually Arabic in origin. Hmm. Okay, hmm. which begs the question: What is an what is essentially a Muslim numbering system doing on a Scandinavian runestone? Right. Hmm. Well, who interacted with Muslims? Vikings. During medieval times. Well, how about the Templars? Yeah, Templars. In the Holy Land, right? Mm. In any case, getting back to the inscription, it starts with the number eight. It says eight Goths and 22 Northmen on this acquisition business slash taking up land from Vinland far to the west. We had a camp near two shelters, one day's journey north from this stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, found 10 men red from blood and death, and then three Latin letters, A-V-M. And then the last line says, save from evils. On the side of the stone, there are three more lines that say, um, there are 10 men by the inland sea to look after our ships, 14 days journey from this island, year 1362. Mm. The Norsemen, you said, uh, you mean Norwegians? Well, it says Northmen, N-O-R-T-H-M-E-N. That's what they called themselves back in the day. Well, I, I and, and based on some uh, other information that we have, I would think that Norwegians is probably probably correct. Yeah, yeah. So back to the stone. So, so you had a lot of uh, scholars there, and you managed to sway some of them, but... Um, Although I, I do appreciate you assert that the geological evidence shows that it's original. That's fine. And by the way, has any other geologists looked into it and reached a different conclusion from you? Um, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. The, uh, the only other geologist that has done meaningful work on the runestone was the first state geologist of Minnesota, his name was Newton H. Winchell, and in 1909, he was recruited by the Minnesota Historical Society Museum Committee to conduct a study on the stone, and um, he wrote a 76-page report, and in there, he talked about doing some relative age weathering studies, which is exactly what I did, um, and remember, when, when I did my work, I did not know about Winchell. I did, well, I knew mm. who he was, but I didn't know that he had worked on the Kensington Runestone. And I was quite surprised to find that out. And I was a little worried at first because I thought, oh, God, what if he came to a different conclusion? Well, in that 76-page report, um, 
In fact, I can tell you verbatim what he wrote. The last uh, sentence he wrote was, the said stone is not a modern forgery and must be accepted as a genuine record of exploration in Minnesota at the date stated in the inscription. And I remember when I read that, I just went, whew. <laughs> mm. I was I was relieved, right? But but the more I thought about it, the more I, I I decided that all I all I did was independently replicate what he already did, and um, that's the way it works in science. So the only other guy who uh, who looked at it ninety years before I did uh, came to the same conclusion that I did. Yeah. So that's the hard evidence. Now uh, what I was getting at was that. The pseudoskeptics who, of course, we all know that in any controversial issue that goes against authority or their established materialism paradigm, uh, they have to knee-jerk, take the opposite, and, and then they try to look for evidence to support their opposite. So this is an anti, or at least it's a non-scientific approach. Correct. And of course, yeah. here you went uh, against the establishment, you went against established view that Vikings couldn't have had anything to do in Kensington at that time. Ergo, they had to try to find uh, something to cling to because they need a semblance of a scientific excuse at least and so they have heavily relied on linguistics yeah. etymology yeah. which isn't like, like i have to just say to my listeners in case anyone don't know it isn't a hard science meaning Knowledge change all the time. We learn new stuff. There's wrong interpretations. There's lack of sources. It's not a fixed. It's not an either or thing. Like in, in hard science, you can examine something, you can investigate it, and you can determine it. Uh, of course, there's also gray areas and nuances there too. But this sure. is, this is <laughs> really, it's like archaeology, right? It's more to do with who's doing it than actually the craft itself. And one of their big deals is the word uppdagelse yeah. or uppdagelsesferd. That means voyage of discovery. I've looked into it and actually all three words are Norse. We have dagr, still used in Iceland, which means day. We have ferd, still used in Norway, meaning uh, journey, voyage. And we have up, which means up. Right. Now, the only trouble is that the combination of these words, meaning a voyage of discovery, as far as, and I haven't researched this very deep, but they say that the earliest examples uh, is from Germany. Uh, a little later than the 1300s. But this is just where we're at right now. It's not written in stone. And other stuff they claimed was not possible. You had to, if I understand you correctly, there were similar dogmas. You went to Scandinavia. You verified that it was wrong. You debunked those dogmas, right? Well, yeah, they would, they would not agree, but <laughs> that's fine. I mean... And by the way, can I just go back for a sec? You talked about Abdaga. One of the things that Dick, uh, Dick Nielsen and Henrik Williams discovered is that um, the thorn ruin, which represents the, uh, the D sound, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the rule, and it's, uh, there was something that they discovered that was medieval. Mm -hmm. And the word is not Abdag El Safar, and I'm not pronouncing it right. But it's actually a T sound as opposed to a D sound. So it's a taga. Yeah. 
which changes it from journey of discovery to journey of acquisition or taking up land. Ah, that makes sense. That do make sense. I mailed a friend of mine. Unfortunately, he didn't get back to us before the show, but I'm anticipating his answers. He's Icelander. Yeah. And he's uh, an expert in runes and in etymology, symbolism, language. He doesn't know why I've asked him this, but I've asked him about this word. Can he check Icelandic records for how far back these three words goes, especially in combination? Because this is this is a very fragile field. It's a you can't rest a dogma uh, about history upon such a fragile uh, field as uh, linguistics because uh, we we have so little sources and the black plague is the big problems because the Norse elite in Norway was wiped out after that we had to import nobility from Denmark and Sweden because most people who could read and write was wiped out and of course the black plague was in the period 1348 to 1350 in Norway and so it's interesting because if you want to look for a possibility of a journey in, um, uh, when was it again, 1362? 1362, but the party, according to the records we have, left Norway in 1358. 58 even, that's so uh, so interesting because we know it was mixed company, Swedes and Norwegians, and... Uh, that would fit. After the Black Plague, Norway had to rely on Swedes and Danish. So it would make right. it very... And another thing, when you have Goths and Norsemen mixed like this, obviously the language being spoken... First off, people have to understand it's a very fluid language. It's not like today, everything has a rule. We know this from our shows from the Shakespeare mystery. You know, the way the Shakespearean's place, uh, Shakespeare actually defined a lot of rules. Yeah. <laughs> but even he himself used several versions of how, because the written language wasn't fixed. And the same is um, even more so true for the Norse language back then. And so you would expect when they're Swedes and Norwegians, they would be more prone to use uh, pop words or, or contemporary words uh, imported from the, uh, a bigger, a bigger scene than just you know a local village in Norway. If you see what I mean, yeah. And uh, you know, th- there's even uh, they don't consider the fact that after 1319, I think it was, there was a mixed dialect uh, spoken by um, Norwegians and Swedes uh, in those areas where they hanged. It is called Old Bulansk or something like that, right? But I'm not sure that word would figure there, but nonetheless. But even even disregarding that, these are travelers. And in mixed company, they have their force to use common words to understand each other because they're Swedes and Norwegians. Yeah. And probably Swedes and Norwegians from different places even. And Norway has the more dialects, meaning versions, variations of the language than any other uh, language on earth compared to the population. Oh, okay. has to do with uh, huge areas, sparse populated, so local variations uh, will develop. Yeah. And this again is an argument for words like optimization and others that they mean couldn't be used back then could be used back then yeah. due to these sober facts I've said well and and you know the, the the way you're presenting it is fine but remember from my from my point of view the stone told me that it is authentic therefore it's not this could have been used 
it had to have yeah. been used because the stone says so. You follow, you yeah. follow what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. And so a real scientist would try to find out how would these words be used back then if we think they couldn't be used back then. You see what I mean? Uh-huh. Yep. And this discovery of optage instead of opdage. Yes. Uh, changing the meaning makes a lot of sense. And so I would expect any word they would throw at you from that stone that could be controversial would mean a revision in the science of linguistics, basically. In the known record of linguistic for, yep. uh, for, for, for old Swedish, in this case. Uh, just another source, uh, improving our, our understanding. knowledge base, if they were scientific. Yep. Yeah. Okay, last last point before we take a break here. Um, okay. In the Curse of Oak Island, uh, this TV show, they have had some decent researchers on, and they have shown, they have proven connections, not just in Oak Island, but uh, New Ross, you know, whole, the whole area where Templars have come from France, they have come from Portugal, oh, yeah. and even Viking Templars. Yeah, or, 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 or uh, Scandinavian Templars, yeah. Yeah, because they were, you know, they were still Vikings uh, even after they were Christian. Yeah, I would call them Norse at that point. And, Norse, okay. And, and the reason I say that is because in, in where I live here, you know, in the Kensington Runestone is is uh, a big part well that's the biggest part uh, that's how i got started in this whole thing but you know for for over a century people equated that with vikings meaning the from the viking area pre-christian and that's just not the case yeah they they imagine people with horns on their helmet and stuff yeah, right? I know that nonsense yeah, yeah but, it's just nonsense but, but they, it was it was these uh, Norwegian Templars that created the runestone because the, the Kensington party is mentioned in these documents. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, don't we have other Templar evidence? Let Oak Island rest for now. But yep. apart from that, isn't there plenty of evidence of Absolutely. Vikings and Templars, uh, as Norsemen having visited America? Absolutely. If this was an odd one out, would be wanting, but isn't it in fact, even after the Norse ruins discovered in Newfoundland in 1961, and by the way, the Norse were so familiar with America that they had their own words, their own names for many parts, like Labrador was called Markland. Yeah. <laughs> or, yep. or Vinland is obviously well known. But Frisland. Pardon? Frisland. Frisland, another. Yeah. Although, isn't Friesland this sunken? Anyway, let's not go, even go there. Yeah, but, I, 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 I'm just going by memory. I could be wrong. Yeah. But you have different, even other runestones in America, which are there, be them authentical or not. Uh, I see from I see from Wikipedia stuff like. Maybe you can comment on some of these, but Oklahoma runestone. Well, uh, the, that's the Hevner runestone, which I have seen. I just. Um, I've been down there. We did an episode on it on the show. Mm. Um, okay. We uh, then you have the uh, Narragansett runestone, which I saw the day before yesterday. That's the uh, one you sent me pictures of in Rhode Island. Mm. That's in Rhode Island, and then we have uh, Inhoc Signovinci stone, which we also looked at two days ago. Where is that? <laughs> that or uh, no, we looked at that yesterday. That's right. It was the twenty-first. So where is uh, it? That one is located on the beach in Newport. It's in Latin. Wow. And we did an episode on that one 
that was in an episode that we we filmed this year. When uh, Scott says episode, he's referring to his show America on America Earth. On We're going to discuss that in part two. Yeah. Uh, then you have uh, the spirit pond rune stones, right? Yes. In Maine, there's three of them. Actually, there were actually there were four. The fourth one was a pendant, but that one disappeared. That's um, Walter Elliott who discovered the stones in a cluster. He kept that as a as just as a personal item but he turned the other three stones over and they're currently in the main state museum mm. and they don't even let people look at them because they're such fakes but they're absolutely oh. they're absolutely not fake oh okay <laughs> i get it <laughs> what about the verandry rune stone in the great lakes pardon me uh found west of the great lakes in 1730 i don't know how you pronounce it verandry rune stone verandry lebrandry stone no that's not a rune stone that's a french land claim plaque well that was in in now in south dakota oh you're thinking of the lebrandry stone that was found in the column yeah up high uh, by um pierre gaultier Yes, the Lavrandre stone. Yeah. But we don't know for sure what that was carved in. All we know is there's a statement that they look like Tartar characters. Okay. And those characters, I think it's Tartar script, and that looks a lot like runes, and I think it probably is runes. Yeah, right. Or it could be one of the other people who went west. Egyptians have been in America. Everyone has been there, basically. So, well, that- And, um, of course... Uh, if we had uh, this frequent traffic, then uh, there should be precedence. And there is, you know, Thor Heyerdahl? Oh, I, yes. In fact, Thor Heyerdahl wrote me a note wow. the year before he died. Wow. I'll never forget it. I met his uh, Per uh, Lillestrand. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. Yeah, uh, because, you know, uh, before he died, he was into very interesting work. But what he's known for, of course, is to debunk these dogmas that, oh, no, uh, these people X could not get from A to B because it was impossible. He even showed that with the primitive seafaring tools that they had, the different people around the world they could get either it was on uh, rivers or there was across the pacific you know huge distances in primitive boats making the viking boats look like ufos in comparison so <laughs> yeah, exactly. so here so the point is he 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 knew this was possible and after him you know we all had to concede okay so it's possible well, now. Yeah, exactly. You know that the Vikings did back and forth, back and forth. By the way, did you the work he he did work on at the end was that the runes, the origin of the runes, is pretty interesting because it says that Odin noticed that the other people had a magical, and we'll get to this in part two. By the way, yeah, yeah. they had a magical language. They had tools to communicate with the gods and stuff. And he was referring, obviously, to the hieroglyphs and to the Hebrew and all the ancient holy alphabets. And so he wanted something similar for them. Now we know, right. and Torheadal was a part of this work, that Odin actually was a tribe's head. He was an actual historic person. They originated in the area around the Black Sea, and they went as a part of the migration period all the way to to Scandinavia eventually as the um, ice caps were withdrawing. And so, uh, yeah, so the runes are from the get-go a spiritual. It's not just 
you know, a practical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Okay. And we'll get to this in part two, which we actually have to go to now uh, because of uh, the time. Is there any other thing you want to say about the rune stone before we wrap up part one? Well, I, <clears throat> I think um, what I would say is what I wrote in my book is that the beginning of the founding of the United States of America didn't begin in 1776. Hmm. It officially began in 1362. I'm with you there. Uh, and we're closing up to the break. Okay. But at the end of part one here, just to go back to back on track here, what about the Elbow Lake runestone? Is that a hoax or is that? No, that one, it's not a hoax. It's modern. It's just a, mo it's just a modern stone. It was in the guy who carved it admitted it. Oh, okay. So uh, I mean, a hoax is something designed. I know, I know, yeah. I know. But they call it a hoax in Wikipedia. So. You know, pseudo-skeptics rule Wikipedia, so... Well, Wikipedia is garbage, okay? I, I know. Let's not even go there. We're going to have shows on it. We talked about it before. Everybody knows. Yeah, okay. Uh, what about the AVM? And I usually say to my listeners, use Wikipedia on anything that, you know, if there's not a shred of controversy, like how do you spell a word, then use yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> or if it's the United States in the Northern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere, they'll probably get that right. <laughs> right, right. Because as soon as there is a controversy, you can be sure one of the parties, interested parties, uh, you know, are controlling the information. Absolutely. That's the problem. So you have the AVM runestone. What about that? It's well, now, if there is such a thing as a hoax runestone, it's that one, because right. that stone was carved by some academics um, uh. who had heard, uh, became inspired by Anatoly Lieberman's spirited lecture about the Kensington runestone hoax. So these guys went up and camped, these uh, archaeology students, mm. uh, and they went up and camped at the park on the Omen Farm, which is now a Douglas County Park, back in um, the 1990s, I think it was. Mm. In any case, they were 17 years prior to the discovery, so that would have been 2001, would have been in the early 80s. But anyway... Um, they carved this AVM, um, three other runes. I'm not sure what they were trying to say. And then 1363, right? Mm. And geologically, that one did not do well. <laughs> and they admitted later on when it was found that they had, they had carved it to see if anybody would find it. Well, if, if anything is a hoax, it's the academics that perpetrated the hoax. Yeah. That was yeah. This is like, oh, now we're going to prove that the Kensington runestone is a hoax by, you know, launching this hoax and everybody will fall for it. And this but it was, it was revealed, right? Easy to reveal. Oh, yeah. I thought, everybody knows I've written all about it. But here's the thing. This was uh, created with the intention to deceive. Yeah. So it's ironic that it's the academics that are always claiming that other people are perpetrating hoax. But the only <laughs> ones we know for sure that did perpetrate a hoax were academics. Right, right. Isn't that ironic? It, it is, it is. Uh, it, but, you know, black is white and white yeah, is black. Exactly. Now, what about the main penny? Uh, interesting, uh, it's a coin from um, Norway showing Olav Kyrre, uh, who reigned 1067 to 1093, which mo would mean uh, Vikings or whatever. Right. Well, you know... I as far as I understand, the uh, provenance of the discovery, it's in a clean archaeological context. So it's not a hoax, right? Hmm. But the explanation is to keep the paradigm intact is that it's some type of a trade item that came over much later. Well, 
how did it get over here? Did it get here by Amazon? I mean, <laughs> you know, somebody brought it over here, right? Yeah, yeah. And it may have been traded amongst natives for a generation or two or three. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> but the fact is it came over. That's the point. Right. I mm. guess. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, and what uh, about the Beardmore relics? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what to say about those because those things disappear, disappeared, didn't they? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That I don't know. I, I'm not too familiar in detail. But what I do know is that they have found lots of rune stones and, and Viking remnants in the Nova Scotia area. Absolutely. So, uh, and some of them are featured in the, in the Oak Island show. Yeah. <clears throat> so it doesn't just rest on the Kensington. Oh God, no, no. Mm. Okay. That, then I don't see what the big deal is. <laughs> well, the big deal is, is that people don't like the Templars, most notably the Roman Catholic church, which a lot of people um, in America are, uh, have forgotten that that is not the state religion. We don't have a state religion. Right. Um, but again, it, let's just put it this way. A lot of the pushback on the Kensington runestone and the Templars in America have to do with religion and politics. Yeah. Which is still with us, unfortunately. Oh, it's, it's no. not going anywhere. <laughs> no, no. Well, we'll go somewhere. We'll go take a coffee break and toilet break. Oh, okay. And when we come back in part two, folks, we're going to delve deeper into the more esoteric and interesting aspects of this saga. Don't go anywhere. I can't wait. <laughs> All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. <laughs> 